0: The following message is by Pastor Steve Clark of the Evangelical Free Church of Salt Lake City. More information is available at our website, www.slcevfree.org.
1: That is a providentially well-chosen song. I'm thankful for that. Pray with me. God would you indeed find us faithful you are so much to be faithful to and you've given us so much reason to be faithful and you've given us a great cause in which to be faithful would you find us so by grace Lord. that song just laid out a lot of what should be on our minds and should be our hopes that we are working and serving and striving rooted in You, seeing You, finding You in the Scriptures, having our hearts fueled by You and therefore laying our lives down for You. God, find us faithful in that. And would you be pleased this morning to use this sermon a little bit towards that? Lord, I don't pretend to have some great collection of words here this morning. I have to and delight to trust in Your Spirit to take my feeble words to open up Your grand word and to change people's hearts with it. Would You do that? Would You be pleased to do that this morning? Father, by the Spirit, for the glory of Christ, and for the good of Your church. Amen. I've mentioned the the book and the film series, The Band of Brothers, before, and I'm going to bring it up again because I find so much in that that is illustrative. That book, the the film series, is the story tracing a company of American paratroopers as they are training for and then begin to fight in the European theater of the Second World War. It's about this one particular group of men. and They are to lead the D-Day invasion into France, and in the spring of 1944, Everybody knew that invasion was coming exactly when where and how was uncertain, but it was a matter of when and not if and That meant that everybody in that company of soldiers knew at least this much a Bunch of them were gonna die sometime in the next few months that Was clear and it was clear to their parents back in the US and a part of this book recounts a a couple of the letters sent back and forth between those parents and those soldiers awaiting the coming battle one exchange struck me a mother writes to her son expressing her fear that he might die in the coming battle and sharing what seemed to me to be natural hopes and fears and prayers that he wouldn't die that he'd make it through and her warrior son wrote back and chastised her for her selfishness. That's the part that struck me. It seemed a little cold, and perhaps it could have been a little more sensitive. I don't know. It's pretty brief in the book, and it's hard to read somebody else's mail and know about how they usually communicate with one another. But skipping over all that, his general point was, not in these words, but his general point was, there is a price to pay for this goal to be attained, and it must be attained. So don't be selfish and pray for His death and not mine. There's a price to be paid for this. Somebody's going to die. Lots of us are going to die. Don't pray for it to be Him instead of me. Pray instead rather, Mom, that the goal would be attained. Whatever the cost. We have to win. And it will cost us something. Pray for that. Victory. It's pretty shocking. Let's skip over for a moment that guy's perspective on prayer and whether or not he was insensitive to his mother and focus on the bottom line. He's calling for a reorientation of priorities away from self and self-protection and self-preservation as my chief goal and towards The cause being attained, whatever the cost, as the chief goal. Turn it around. Success of the mission, whatever the cost. If we're in the self-preservation business, we're in the wrong business. This is the army, we're at war. People are going to die. Pray for success, that our lives not be spent in vain. if you walk through a war or anything else in life I hope that happens at no cost to me it's a recipe for failure in battle and in anything, tack that on the end of any sentence I want a good marriage at no cost to me hope it doesn't hurt me or cost me or, or inflict any impinging on how I like to live but I'd love to have a good marriage or I'd like to have a successful career at no cost to me I want to have great kids at no cost to me it doesn't work I want to have a vibrant, thriving spiritual life at no cost to me. I want Christ to be known and loved and to have His love and gracious glory seen and praised and enjoyed in Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, to the ends of the earth. It is my hope, Lord, that You would give the nations to Your Son, as we sang, at no cost to me. That's folly. We spend a lot of time trying to live that last one out. I want, Lord, I want your global cause to triumph and I want you to be praised from one end of this globe to the other. I want the glory of Christ to cover the earth as the waters cover the sea. At no cost to me. We don't affirm that, but we live like that a lot. We need to have a reorientation of this. That the goal might not be me and protection of me, but Christ in His glory. And a passage this morning in Acts 20 is going to indirectly raise that issue for all of us. And I say indirectly because directly the passage is primarily talking to elders. Front and center are elders, and so it's speaking directly to them, calling them to some particular task in Christ's global mission going to call them to something large and impossible. And then as we see how they are to be enabled to do that, that's where it's going to connect to us because we all actually are under orders and on a mission. How are we going to do that? Not necessarily at no cost to me, but he has given us ability and strength and grace that we can accomplish that. We're going to look at that this morning from Acts 20. Let me read the passage. Remember From Acts 19, we're coming out of, of this riot that was last week in the city of Ephesus. And eventually, right after that riot, Paul left. And here now, we're going to see him traveling around and then coming back into contact with the same church in Ephesus, actually with the elders of the church. So the beginning of this passage is kind of him traveling around. Let me read that section first, verses 1 to 16. I'm going to read it, and then make a few comments about it. We're going to spend most of our time in the second half of the chapter. This is 20, verses 1 to 16. After the uproar ceased, that's the riot from last week, Paul sent for the disciples, and after encouraging them, he said farewell and departed for Macedonia. When he had gone through those regions and had given them much encouragement, he came to Greece. There he spent three months. And when a plot was made against him by the Jews as he was about to set sail for Syria, he decided to return through Macedonia. So Pater of Berea, the son of Pyrrhus from Berea, accompanied him. And of the Thessalonians, Aristarchus and Secundus, and Gaius of Derby and Timothy and the Asians, Tychicus and Trophimus, these went on ahead and were waiting for us at Troas. We sailed away from Philippi after the days of unleavened bread, and in five days we came to them at Troas, where we stayed for seven days." On the first day of the week, when we were gathered together to break bread, Paul talked with them, intending to depart on the next day, and he prolonged his speech until midnight. There were many lamps in the upper room where we were gathered, and a young man named Eutychus, sitting at the window, sank into a deep sleep as Paul talked still longer. And being overcome by sleep, he fell down from the third story and was taken up dead." But Paul went down and bent over him, and taking him in his arms, said, Do not be alarmed, for his life is in him. And when Paul had gone up and had broken bread and eaten, he conversed with them a long while until daybreak, and so departed. And they took the youth away alive and were not a little comforted. But going ahead to the ship, we set sail for Asos, intending to take Paul aboard there, for for so he had arranged, intending himself to go by land. And when he met us at Asos, we took him on board and went to Mytilene. And sailing from there, we came the following day opposite Chios. The next day we touched at Samos, and the day after that we went to Miletus. For Paul had decided to sail past Ephesus so that he might not have to spend time in Asia, for he was hastening to be at Jerusalem, if possible, on the day of Pentecost. As I say, we're not going to spend a lot of time in this section. I just want to give a, a basic feel for it. After the riot had died down, he says goodbye to the church and departs on this trip. He continues on with the travel plans that he had laid before the riot. So he says goodbye to this church in Ephesus, and he'd spent a long time there—years, close to three years. So they were close. It says there were very close tears that we read about later in this passage. So the parting was was a sweet and sorrowful parting. But he encouraged them, encouraging them to persevere. And in fact, Paul encouraging Christians is a kind of a, a theme here in this first section of the chapter. He encourages them as he's traveling around in verse 2. He's encouraging all these different churches that he's touching on. Even the, the miracle of the raising the boy from the dead in verses 10 to 12 is told kind of in an odd way that emphasizes the encouragement of it rather than the miraculous power in it. So, says he fell out of, the, out of the window, he's taken up dead, Paul says, he grabs him and says, actually, he's alive, he heals him, and then he goes upstairs and continues on with the sermon and the communion. And they took him away, not a little comforted or encouraged, same word. Seems like he's emphasizing the encouragement of it rather than the miraculous power of the healing. So I think that's the perspective that we're supposed to be taking in this chapter. This is encouragement to us. Paul's traveling around, he's kind of making a a victory lap, if you will. It's his last passing through all the places where he's been. He's on the way to Jerusalem and then to Rome. This is the end of his church planting ministry. And the people that he's gathering and traveling with, they are representatives of each of his three missionary journeys. If you check the places out there, they match up with churches he planted in each of those journeys. He's traveling around saying farewell with at his side people who are representing the fruit of all this ministry in a sense saying, be encouraged. Look, God's doing it. And he's going to go up to Jerusalem with these same guys saying, look, it happened. He spread his glory to the nations. Be encouraged in my words that I give you and in the deeds like healing and in the the living examples of these people. That's the perspective. This is about encouragement. And in the Bible, encouragement is not a... Of course, it's not a, let me pump you up and tell you how good you are. It's a, let me encourage you to remember how good Christ is. What he has done, who he is, what he promised to do. And let me then tell you about what the future will hold and how you are to face that, to persevere through it. Let me encourage, exhort you through this. It's what Paul's doing. Which brings us to verse 17. We're going to spend the most of our time. Let me read 17 through the end of the chapter. Now, from Miletus, he sent to Ephesus and called the elders of the church to come to him. And when they came to him, he said to them, You yourselves know how I lived among you the whole time from the first day that I set foot in Asia, serving the Lord with all humility and with tears and with trials that happened to me through the plots of the Jews, How I did not shrink from declaring to you anything that was profitable, and teaching you in public and from house to house, testifying both to Jews and to Greeks of repentance towards God and of faith in our Lord Jesus Christ. And now, behold, I am going to Jerusalem, constrained by the Spirit, not knowing what will happen to me there, except that the Holy Spirit testifies to me in every city that imprisonment and afflictions await me. But I do not account my life of any value, nor as precious to myself, if only I may finish my course and the ministry that I have received from the Lord Jesus to testify to the gospel of the grace of God. And now, behold, I know that none of you among whom I have gone about proclaiming the kingdom Will see my face again. Therefore, I testify to you this day that I am innocent of the blood of all of you, for I did not shrink from declaring to you the whole counsel of God. A careful attention to yourselves and to all the flock in which the Holy Spirit has made you overseers to care for the church of God, which He obtained with His own blood. and to give you the inheritance among all those who are sanctified. I coveted no one's silver or gold or apparel. You yourselves know that these hands ministered to my necessities and to those who are with me. In all things I have shown you that by working hard in this way, we must help the weak and remember the words of the Lord Jesus, how he himself said it is more blessed to give than to receive. And when he had said these things, he knelt down, and prayed with them all and there was much weeping on the part of all they embraced Paul and kissed him being sorrowful most of all because of the word he had spoken that they would not see his face again and they accompanied him to the ship having looped through Greece Paul is traveling back around the end of what is modern Turkey he's gonna pass so close to Ephesus He's been away from there for about a year or so, and he just has to connect to that church again. He loves these folks. But he doesn't have time to see the whole church, so he sails down to Miletus, about 30 miles to the south, and sends for the elders, and they come. And he speaks to them this farewell discourse. It's the only recorded speech in the book of Acts that's directed to Christians. All the other speeches are directed either to non believing Jews or non believing Gentiles. These are to, this is to Christians. And the most significant aspect of it is that it's directed to a particular subset of Christians, to elders. See that word in verse 17? He called the elders. And when they came, he says in verse 28 that they are overseers. That's a word, elders from Hebrew, and overseers is borrowed from Greek. And that's the word that we get English words like episcopal or bishop from. And then he says that they are to shepherd, to care for, to shepherd the flock of God. That's a word that we get our English word pastor from. So all this group of people here are called elders, overseers, and pastors. They're all the same thing. So we need to be careful to not draw too big of a divide in our mind between elders and pastors, or pastors and bishops. There's a group here. Even while there is also Timothy, who seems to be over the whole group in Ephesus, that's First and Second Timothy are written to him. There is a there's a unity here of leadership. Elders are pastors. Pastors are overseers. Overseers are elders. It's all the same terminology. And he speaks to them, focusing in on what they are to do. But at the same time, Luke has, inspi- Luke has been inspired by God to put this in the Bible for all of us to read. So there's something for all of us here for us to learn a little bit about what elders, overseers, pastors are to be like, yes, but also as we see them called to some high and impossible, humanly speaking, impossible mission. We see them called to that, and we'll see then how God intends for them to undertake that. At that point right there, it's going to connect to all of us because he's called all all of us, to a high and humanly impossible task. That's what this book is about. The whole book is headed by 1-8. Chapter 1, verse 8. You shall be my witnesses. That's impossible. Around the world, impossible. And that's all of us called to that. We'll see something towards the end about how he enables and intends elders to undertake their task, and that's how he intends all of us to undertake our tasks. So, that's where we're going. We're going to spend the rest of our time here. Let me summarize where I'm going in a sentence here. Having received a high calling in service to the Lord, that's all of us, having received a high calling in service to the Lord, stop counting your own life as precious to you. So it's going to be pressed on us here. Stop counting your own life as precious to you. That doesn't mean you don't have any human dignity. I'm not saying you're not precious. In God's sight, you are precious, but stop counting it as precious to yourself. That's where I'm going. I'm going to move towards that through three observations from this text. First is concerned with God's attitude that lies behind the passage and drives it. It's my first observation. God loves His church and therefore continually works to grow and protect it. God loves His church, His people. Therefore, He's about something, growing it and protecting it. He deeply treasures it. And if you're a genuine Christian, you're in this group, and what's true of the entity that he deeply treasures and loves the entity is true of you individually. He treasures and deeply loves you. Now, God loves everybody on the planet. He made all people in his image. He loves all people, but he loves his people, his own people, uniquely. Like any parent, he's biased. Not based on what we've done, based on relationship. Relationship. You look at any loving, normally caring adult parent, they, they like all the kids on the block. They, they care for all of them. They, they watch out for all of them. But their own kids, that's special. That's normal. God's that way too. He loves everybody, but he loves his church, his people, uniquely, specially, deeply. This shows up in verse 28. The overseers are to care for the church of God which he obtained with his own blood. Literally it says, which he obtained with the blood of his own. might write capital O on own there. Surely a reference to Jesus and his shed blood on the cross, but he he puts that in such a way that it heightens the intimacy between God the Father and God the Son. Jesus is God's own. He's the one that God has, that he loves, that he cares for. And he gave that one up to get you. He gave that one up to obtain his church. That speaks of the intimacy between God the Father and his people. If he gave up his own to get his church, how does he feel for the church? He loves it. He cares deeply for it. Think about the price he's paid there. Look at the price, the blood of his own, written across the the cross, scrawled out there in red, if you will. I love you, and I'm going to do this to get you. I want you this much. I will have you, and I will pay whatever price it takes to remove the barrier between me and you, the barrier of sin. I want to clear that away so that I can have you, my people, my church, individually and corporately. We don't deserve that. We are sinners. We don't deserve that. And yet that is the grace of God to us, His love. That's why Paul can call this the gospel of the grace of God. A free gift that draws us into love like you've never known until you've known it. That's how God feels about the church. That's the attitude that lies behind this passage. And it moves him to do something. He doesn't just save the church and then leave it there. He's moved to continue to work and to grow it, to develop it and protect it. How does that happen? Well, by pouring the word of grace into it. By the bucket load. Look how Paul describes this. It played out in history. God sends Paul to Ephesus to plant a church there, and he does, and he doesn't then just move on and leave it. He spends three years there doing what? Certainly a whole lot more evangelism. It says that he's speaking to Jew and to Gentile alike, calling all to repent and to turn to God, to believe in Christ. It's clearly evangelizing. It says the gospel spread throughout that whole region of Asia. That's certainly going on. But Paul also says something else, verse 31. He says that for three years, I ceaselessly, night and day, admonished you all. That's the church. For three years, I was in the midst of you warning and teaching. How about verses 20, 26, 27? 27. I did not shrink back, he says this twice. I did not shrink back from declaring to the church everything that I could think of that would be helpful. The whole counsel of God, he says, I'm innocent of any possible blame because I told you everything. The whole counsel of God is very big. It's God's plan, it's God's thinking, it's his thoughts, it's his idea from creation to consummation at the end, everything, Paul taught that. In public and in private, everywhere. To Jew and to Gentile, everyone, ceaselessly, night and day, always, he taught everyone, everything, always, everywhere. Perhaps that all-night sermon in Troas was not that exceptional. You realize he taught there for hours, And apart from the incident in the middle where the guy fell out of the window, people sat there and listened for hours. The teaching ministry of Paul is staggering, which means that the listening ministry is staggering. Because eventually if people stopped coming, he'd stop talking, I assume. They're there for years listening to lots of teaching. Because both parties, Paul and the church, were convinced We cannot live on bread alone. We need the words that come out of the mouth of God through you. Teach. We'll listen. In Paul's mind, he was far more than just a one-message evangelist. To testify to the gospel of the grace of God is to bear witness to God's message, His whole counsel. To talk about God and His marvelous complexity His majesty and his glory and his wisdom in what he has planned and his power and how he has carried it out. To describe his character of love and of justice both. To show it in the cross, to show it in creation and in providence. It is not just a simple message in the four spiritual laws. Repeat it again and again and again and again and again. It's wide, it's the word of grace. the word of the revelation of God Paul is carrying out the ministry of the word thoroughly admonishing and teaching he is God's instrument to protect and develop and grow this church that he planted and that he loves he's growing through the ministry of the word Have you ever experienced the growth and the the development and the blessing of the ministry of the Word? Do you regularly experience it? It comes in lots of different forms, as I've mentioned before. It could be sermons, Bible studies, songs that are about the Scripture, many different ways the Word can be delivered to you and, and worked into you. You experience that. Most of the time, I think... The ministry of the word and and the nourishment and the building up that it gives to me is a, a lot like, I might say, last Monday's lunch. I don't remember what I had for lunch last Monday, do you? But you had lunch, and it nourished you, it fed you until dinner, and then next day's breakfast and lunch, and on and on and on. Most of the time, the, the word of grace, he says in verse 32, that builds you up, builds you up like that, kind of incrementally and in small degrees. It just nourishes you for that day. You receive that day's daily bread. Occasionally, there is a feast laid out that you remember for a long time. I read once of a couple who was reporting an experience they'd had. They had heard a sermon from Isaiah 6. Isaiah 6 talks about the Lord high and exalted. And they heard this sermon and then went home and shortly thereafter suffered a tragedy in their family. I believe a family member died tragically. And months later, they recalled that though there had been many kind words and comforting hugs and cards and meals, shoulders to cry on, The church had really come around them in many different ways and it was all critical and vital. The thing they reported to everybody's surprise because they hadn't mentioned it at all and it had been many months now. The thing that had sustained their hearts for all those months was the Lord high and exalted and the train of His robe filling the temple. And the angels flying around him crying out holy 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 is the lord god almighty and the place was shaking and filled with smoke and that image filled their minds and somehow it sustained them because they saw something else that gave them perspective on the sorrows of life the ministry of the word grab them and touch them. And I imagine that there were plenty of other people in the audience who forgot it the next day because it was Monday's lunch to them. That's how it works. God speaks through His Word and sometimes He speaks certain things of certain people that they will need for a long time. And sometimes it's just today's daily bread. The point, though, is that He grows and protects and guides by the ministry of the Word everything, taught everywhere to everybody all the time, constantly. That happened in Ephesus for years. Paul did that for years. And then a riot happened and he left. So we have to ask, if that was God's care for that church, did Paul's departure mean that God stopped caring for the church, that he didn't love the church anymore, that he wasn't going to protect it and shelter it and grow it anymore? No, it doesn't. That brings us to the second point. The second observation from this passage flows right on the heels of the first. God loves a church and works to protect it and grow it. And the second one is God appoints elders to continue the building up and protecting of the church. God appoints elders. Obviously, us being human beings, it's got to be carried out through some mechanism. And in our church, the way we do it is we have congregational votes after a process. But we need to keep in mind, God appoints elders. Elders need to keep that in mind. Congregation needs to keep that in mind. God has put an elder in that place. Responsibility for the elder, then, is to God. And they're appointed to pick up where Paul left off. Paul takes up his ministry of the word and he sails away, and in his place have been appointed elders to carry on that ministry. Verse 28 is his command to them, and it's a twofold command. Pay careful attention to yourselves and to all the flock over which God has appointed you overseers. Yourselves and everybody else, but yourself first. Or as Paul would later say to Timothy, who is the chief elder over this church, it seems, watch yourself and your teaching. He's pressing into this guard yourself, pay careful attention to yourself. Elders, and, and all of us, in fact, but elders particularly because of the job they're called to, must tend to themselves First, like in an airplane, when the cabin depressurizes, what does the stewardess say it before every flight? Put on your own mask first before you even help the children, because if you don't, shortly you won't be able to help the children. Tend to yourself first. Tend to your soul, your own life. Elders, how's it going within? How is your soul going? What are you hoping in, living for, aspiring to? How's your fight against sin and taking every thought captive and subjecting it to the truth? Every elder must believe, as the old Scottish pastor put it, my people's greatest need is for my holiness, first and foremost the congregation over which I'm an overseer, their greatest need is for me to be holy, for me to walk with God. To watch yourself. No church needs charismatic elders or smart elders or elders with people skills or business savvy. Some of that may be helpful, but it is all secondary. The first and greatest need is that elders be men who know and walk with God who are deeply gripped by the realities of another world that is interjecting itself into this one right now and is changing everything, including them, so that they can get up, as Paul could say later in this, at the end of this sermon, he could get up and say, you've seen how I lived. I heard the word from the Lord, it is better to give than to receive, and I lived it, didn't I? I modeled it with my own hands right in front of you. You know it, you're gripped by it, it changes you. You walk amongst the people holy. Watch yourself. Without that, none of the rest of it matters. Watch yourself, your soul, and watch what you teach. A part of the watch yourself that I bring in from Timothy. As an elder, you are to minister the word, and you must do so accurately, obviously. An elder, and and again, this applies to all Christians, but elders especially because of the ministry that they're called to. Elders, must be students of the Word. It means you must sit under it and know it. To, to what level, to what degree? I don't know. I don't know how you quantify that sort of thing. You could put a whole bunch of facts around it that are kind of meaningless. You, you memorize all this and that, and that doesn't say anything about what's actually gripping you. So I can't say to what level you have to be a student of the Word and be, and be gripped by the, the Scriptures. I, I, I don't know. But you have to aspire to that and be a person who is clearly in process and have some advancement in it. Because you're going to give it away and you can't give away what you don't own. You must watch what you teach. Be careful that it be truthful and that it come from a right heart attitude. It's really easy to blast people with the truth, not in love. I'm good at that. It's real easy to do that. Watch yourself, which means watch your soul and what you teach. And all that's because of the second half of the command because you also have to watch the whole flock placed under your care. Pay careful attention. Why? Because God has appointed you to be the overseer of this flock in the midst of a wolf-infested world. There are wolves out there, says Paul. In fact, there are wolves in here. There are wolves outside and there are wolves in the church who will lead people astray by twisting things, by false teaching. This is what makes clear that our primary responsibility is right teaching to combat false teaching. Fits in with what he says to elders in Timothy and Titus. We must refute error and teach truth because air abounds. And wolves, what do they do to sheep? Wolves kill and eat sheep. They don't just steal their lunch money. Make them feel uncomfortable. They kill them. Paul, God through Paul trying to make something clear, this is not a game. The things we're touching on, you can't see them but they're more real than what you can see. There are wolves out there. And though the person on the television or across the street does not look like a wolf, it's a wolf. And if what's coming across to you, believe this, buy this, own this value, live for that. What's coming across to you, if you were to embrace that and believe it with your whole heart, it would lead you to hell. And if you believe it with just half your heart, it will at least wound you and incapacitate you. The church needs the ministry of the Word, truth, to fence out the wolves, to shine light on error. And he's appointed elders for that task. In this last week alone, I alone, I'm not talking about everybody else, just me alone, in this last week alone, I've had interaction with Christians being led astray or at least being attacked or challenged by, I kind of count them up real quickly, four or five different wolf-like things. False teaching and error and twistings coming in. A couple of them were coming through some, like, official religions. And a couple of them were coming just through modern, normal culture, very subtly being worked in there. Such that if you were to embrace any of those things and go with it, as I said, it would lead you to hell. And if you just embrace it part of the way, it's going to lead you far astray and incapacitate you. That's just me just this last week. It's true for every single one of us. Because it's also true for us, individually. I don't face all those errors in other people coming to me. I face them in my own life. When I get up and I read the paper and I watch the television, I talk to my neighbor. It's everywhere. That's what this world is like. And God protects and guides by giving the ministry of the Word, and He has done that now through elders. Elders, it's your job to know the truth and to know the flock so as to apply the truth to them. Now, Every elder that I have ever known, including myself, has feet of clay. That's just true. He's fallen and finite, just like all of us. So we have a tension that we need to hold here. To use the metaphor, every single elder is simultaneously shepherd and sheep. Every single elder is teacher who needs to be taught, authority who is under authority, guide himself is not always clear where the living water is and where the green pastures lie that's reality we are all men of clay feet finite fallen sinners there's a tension there both sides of it are true but at the end of the day elders are the only people in the church that can and have to read verse 28 and say Paul is talking to me Paul says, God deeply loves His church. He bought it with the blood of His own. It is His treasured possession. As Ephesians 1 puts it, it is His glorious inheritance in the saints, the best thing that He owns, the thing that He most loves, His people, those that He holds dear and close to His heart and they are threatened and in danger. And so for the meantime, to care for them, he has put them in my hands. Who is worthy of such a task? That is sobering. And yet it is exactly what he has done. God has appointed elders to continue to build up and protect the church Shepherds, under shepherds, First Peter 5 says, under shepherds, yet shepherds called to care for the flock. That's a sobering task. Pray for the elders. Pray that they would walk with God, that they would know Him. You know these men, you know me, you have some idea what our sins are, what our weaknesses are and our failings are. We have feet of clay, like I said, that, that is true. We are called, though, to a high and holy and awesome and impossible task. Build up the flock to watch for air, to guard with the truth of the word of grace, to be conduits through which God's grace comes to other people, and to not muck it up and get in the way. Who is worthy of such a task? As I thought about this for myself this week, I noticed the struggle that I have with it. And it's the same struggle that I found for a a lot of, if not all of my Christian life, even before I was an elder. So this is a a Christian thing for me, which I think is what makes it a Christian thing for you. The problem is, for me right now today, I see that laid out in front of me, and I say, it's right there. Yep, I, I got it. I see it. I want to embrace that particular piece of God's global work here. I want that to happen. I want to be about that at no cost to me. Or at least at very little cost to me. It doesn't crimp my style too much and still leaves room for me to live life kind of like I want to. Before I had the, the calling of elder put in front of me, I had other callings. You do too. Parent your kids rather than just babysit them. Love your wife as Christ loved the church. Give yourself that the glory of Christ may be known in all the nations. Those are callings laid in front of all of us. And the problem is that many times we say, yep, I see that, I want that to happen. At no cost to me. Or at least at very little cost to me. I hope it's not a very high cost to me because I've really kind of got some other things I want to do too. It's a recipe for failure. That will not work. Brings us to the third point. Paul doesn't just model what elders are to do. He models how they can do it, which is how all of us can do what each of us are called to. And what we need here is a a mindset and a means to get to that mindset. So we're going to see here. Let me give you the, the third observation. It's long, so I'll repeat it. Faithful service in the cause of Christ requires that we no longer account our lives as precious to ourselves. Faithful service in the cause of Christ requires that we no longer account our lives as precious to ourselves whatever particular calling you're looking at, whether it be for you specifically in the stage you are in life or the general callings that sit over the whole body of Christ. Faithful service in them requires that you lay your life aside and have a reordering of priorities such that your chief goal is not the protection of self, but it is the attaining of the mission, the fulfilling of the calling on your life. All of us are called into the service of the Lord. Elders in a particular way right here in this passage. All of us are called, though. And Paul, not just, as I said, models what to do and tells what to do, he models how to get there. Where do I see that in this passage? Verse 24. Paul lived a remarkable life of ministry. In Ephesus alone, let alone around the whole Mediterranean world. How did he do that? He tells us, verse 24, essentially, I keep going knowing it's going to cost me. Everywhere I go, I find out trouble's coming, and I say, I know, trouble's coming, sure, of course, trouble's coming, I know, that's the business that I'm in, I know, and I keep going despite that, even though it's gonna, it may even cost me everything, that's okay because I already gave up everything. I already laid down all of my life back there somewhere on the Damascus Road. In my mind, set up right next to the prophet who says, It's going to cost you everything, Paul. In my mind is saying, It's Christ saying to me, It's going to cost you everything, Paul, and I'm going to give you everything back myself. Pursue me, walk with me, find your life in me by letting go of your own finish the course, discharge the ministry that I give you. That's what grips his mind. He does not count his own life as precious to him, but counts the call of Christ as precious to him. I'm not in the business of self-advancement or self-preservation. Are you? Think, think. Just sift yourself here for just a second. If you're honest with yourself, don't raise your hand and respond to me, but if you're honest with yourself, is that the business that you're in, really? The business of self-preservation, self-advancement and comfort. And around the edges, I'll pack in as much other stuff as I can get, as much of Christ's demands on my life and his call for me. But in the middle here, I've got something else going on, me. From time to time, all of us are living like that. I struggle with that myself. It's not one of those times. Face it, deal with it. That has to change in us. As Dietrich Bonhoeffer once said, wrote, when Christ calls a man, woman, when Christ calls a man, he bids him come and die. In the words of a better authority, if anyone would come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. For whoever would, lose his, whoever would save his life will lose it, but whoever loses his life for my sake will find it. That's an awful lot like don't count your life as of any value to yourself. Come follow me and find a different life. Don't hold on to your own life, your own hopes, your own treasures as if it is your greatest treasure because if you're a Christian, it's not. Jesus is. Reorder the priorities that He and His calling on life will become central to you. And if I just stop there, you've been exhorted by by Paul's model here That's the mindset that you need, but you haven't yet got the means to that mindset because Paul goes a little further. He says, I've modeled this. I I know this is what you need, and I know what I just called you to, and now at the end here as I'm walking away, I put you in a place where that can happen. I commend you to God and to the word of His grace. Verse 32 which is able to build you up and give you the inheritance. Not you yourself. God and the word of his grace. You're going to be ministering that. I'm giving you to that too. That God may grip you like he grips me. That he may come to you through the scriptures. He visited me on the Damascus Road. He won't do that for you. He'll come to you through the scriptures. Grace will be poured on you through his word of grace. And so I commend you to it. I put you in it. Drink it in. Be changed. It is able to build you up. Renovate you on the inside. Cause you to think God's thoughts after him. To value what he values. And when that happens, you're changed. That's the means to the mindset. Drawn along by that grace that promises the future blessing of the inheritance. An inheritance kept in heaven for you. It won't perish. can't be spoiled and will never fade. Drawn along by that grace. That's how we are changed inside. To lay aside life. To put away the at no cost to me mindset and to live sold out for Him. Faithful service in the cause of Christ requires that we no longer account our lives as precious to ourselves. Let me pray. Father, you have given us your word and you've given us your spirit. To teach us.
0: Thank you for listening to this message by Pastor Steve Clark of the Evangelical Free Church of Salt Lake City in Salt Lake City, Utah. Feel free to make copies of this message to give to others, but please do not charge for these copies or alter the content in any way without permission. We invite you to visit our website at www.slcebfree.org.